In 2020, after years of protest in Hong Kong, China unanimously passed a new national security law. Vague and broad in its remit, it applies to everyone who is deemed a risk to national security and has wide implications for freedom and protest in Hong Kong. It allows greater latitude for those who are suspected of sedition and has broad implications for how the justice system works in Hong Kong and how the law can be applied. This is Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith and our guest today is Dr Karen Lee, a senior lecturer in the law school at La Trobe University and she is an expert in the Hong Kong judicial system. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you. You're welcome, Matt. So can you tell me about the Hong Kong judicial system and if we can take it to before the national security law was applied and enforced and... I'm interested to know how it is similar to the Commonwealth system mm. in which it originates, I suppose. Yeah, because of the colonial roots, Hong Kong's legal system has basically been patterned after that of the UK. So basically, we have like different layers or levels of courts, down at the magistrate's level to the court of first instance, then the appeal court, and finally the Court of Final Appeal, which before the handover was actually the Privy Council in London. Yeah. So basically, Hong Kong is a typical common law system with very strong English influences. Okay. And if you looked at the Hong Kong judicial system then, would you see a lot of differences to how it was in Britain? Or could the same sort of rules be applied to each? I'm just wondering how similar it was at the time. Right. One of the like, prominent similarity was that Hong Kong used to apply a lot of uh, British case law. Yeah. We basically cite English cases, particularly before the handover in 1997. Hong Kong courts, if my memory is correct, were bound to follow uh, the authorities from the UK. After the handover, cases from the UK would still be highly persuasive if there were enough like, similarities on the fact. So I would say that before the handover, Hong Kong courts rely more on English case law. But after the handover, English case law would become just persuasive. And there's no obligation for Hong Kong courts to follow the British authorities. Okay. So how extensive has the changes been then to the judicial system after handover? Basically, because of the guaranteed that Hong Kong's judicial system, economic system, or other systems will stay unchanged for 50 years under the one country, two systems framework, there hasn't been much tangible changes in Hong Kong's legal system because of the guaranteed under the basic law, Hong Kong's post-1997 so-called mini-constitution. So in 2020, the national security law was introduced. Can you tell me what was the purpose of that law and what exactly did it do? I'm not sure the real purposes, but I guess that may be related to the rising aspirations for democracy in Hong Kong and also um, some previous widespread social movements. First, in like 2014, the Umbrella Movement. And more recently, 
the anti-extradition bill movement mm. in 2019, which only came to a halt because of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. So I would say that it is possible that the Chinese government um, has increasingly regarded Hong Kong people as like kind of untamable naughty kids that need to be under some kind of control. Yeah. And also because it might have perceived that such rising aspirations for democracy as like threatening its national security and may also influence the sentiment in mainland China because perhaps some mainland Chinese may also aspire some degree of civil liberties, if not democracy. Mm. So I guess it's a mix of different past developments and more recent developments that made China decide to do this. What exactly does it intend to do? What does the national security law change in Hong Kong? The first thing is to stop all these kind of anti-government movements yeah. so that Hong Kong could return to so-called uh, stability and prosperity. I think that's the number one concern for the Chinese government. Because under the national security law, many conducts could be deemed as threatening national security or subversive. So basically, people would tend to be more careful, stating their opinions publicly, or even to demonstrate any kind of discontent because they may be regarded as infringing the law. So people tend to self-censor because the whole political and legal landscapes have changed. Mm. So it is more likely for these kind of behaviours to be thought of as seditious or for that judgment to be passed, actually, isn't it? Yeah, and because all these offences under the national security law are vaguely defined, and some of them were not actually on the book in Hong Kong. So some of them were actually mainland offences that required interpretation in Hong Kong. So that makes it hard for people to know what kind of behaviours are banned under the law. So the safest thing to do is to avoid doing anything that would attract any legal liabilities. So how has it changed the judicial system then, either intentionally or unintentionally? I guess the changes that the national security law brought to Hong Kong mainly lied in the procedural parts, particularly the criminal justice procedure. Because there are a few things. For example, under the national security law, only designated judges appointed by Hong Kong's chief executive can adjudicate cases concerning national security. So that actually narrows down a pool of judges who are qualified and eligible to adjudicate those cases. That's number one. And the second one is the reversal of the presumption in favour of bail. Because uh, following the British common law system, there's always been a presumption that someone who is charged with a crime should be granted bail, Mm. except for certain extraordinary circumstances. So there's always a presumption in favour of it. That's a norm. But under the national security law, that presumption is reversed. So the judges must be satisfied that there are extraordinary circumstances that bail should be given. The presumption is reversed. That makes it really, really difficult for judges to grant bail because they need to have extraordinary circumstances and grounds to say that that suspect 
would have no way to reoffend, right? And it's difficult for the judges to lay out any evidence to do so. So that is a major change under the national security law. And the third thing is the use of jury trial. Previously, in certain more serious offences, a jury trial, I think, was almost always available. But under the national security law, jury trial could be disposed of on certain grounds. One of them is to protect national secret. Again, a vague term, and it's hard to define what amounts to national secret. So that's why I would say that under the national security law, several procedures that have been the norms in Hong Kong's judicial system have changed. This norm is now kind of compromised, or the presumption in favor of it is reversed, speaks of symbolism. Mm. That means that something really fundamental to the legal system has changed. So that may not be really about the actual effect to the legal system or the effect to individual cases. I guess the effect is about this symbolic change of one very fundamental element of Hong Kong's judicial system that have been around us for more than a century or so. Okay. And there would also be the concern that the person then, if it not be a jury who's rendering the verdict, it's a judge. Or a panel of judges. Or a panel of judges. And there would be concern about impartiality. That's hard to say because I'm not suggesting having judges in making the decision is any less fair or unbiased than a panel of jury. That is why a jury trial would only be available for cases concerning certain serious offences like murder. Mm. Right? A jury trial entails a certain degree of unpredictability because you don't know what these group of ordinary men and women may decide over a case. So the fact that a majority of cases in Hong Kong actually have been trialed by judges without a jury trial means that trial by the judge is not a problematic issue. Yeah, I know. But this is cases of national security then. The stakes seem to be a bit different, a bit higher. Would there be pressure on judges to render certain verdicts in these cases? Or is there the perception that this could be the case? Judges are always led by their legal reasoning. They would only make a decision based on reasoning, case law, and reasonableness. Mm. So I guess in that sense, what makes it more attractive to the authority may be that a trial by judges would be more predictable because judges actually are bound by the rules, are bound by all the ground rules laid down by the regime, like in Hong Kong. That's the basic law. And also now under the national security law, there's a proficiency under the law that includes certain restrictions and limits. So I guess that's the predictability part that makes it perhaps a more practical thing to do to allow only judges to um, adjudicate national law security cases. Yeah, Mm. but you spoke as well about judges can have their verdicts overturned. How much does that restrict what a judge can do in a case? Uh, Regarding judges may have their verdict overturned, I think you are talking about a particular provision under the basic law. Mm. Because under the basic law, particularly section 158, it is the NPCSC, that is the National People's Congress Standing Committee, the ultimate political organ in mainland China who has the ultimate power to interpret 
the provisions under the basic law. Previously, during the colonial period, Hong Kong basically followed the UK. That is, only judges can interpret the law. But after the handover and under Section 158 of the basic law, it is the National People's Congress Standing Committee, the NPCSC, who has the power to interpret the basic law provisions. That's why it has happened in the past that particularly in 1999, a decision rendered by the Court of Final Appeal was eventually overturned because the NPCSC was invited by the Hong Kong government to reinterpret certain provisions of the basic law. In that sense, the Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal may not be the ultimate arbiter in certain circumstances, whenever the NPCSC exercise the power to interpret the basic law under certain circumstances. It sounds like it's become a lot more political, the judicial system, at least in the cases of sedition and national security. I may say that the Hong Kong judicial system operates in a political environment. Yeah. I think that's a more accurate way to put it. In these sort of situations then, how has that change public perception towards the Hong Kong judicial system? Is there still the level of public trust that you believe that there was back when this was more aligned with the Commonwealth system? Or do you think that it's changed substantially? Yeah, I think there are lots of nuances over this question because Hong Kong's courts have always been highly regarded by Hong Kong people, and not only Hong Kong people, but by the international community. Yeah. Hong Kong cases have been cited by many courts across the common law world, and highly respected, and our judges have always been regarded as a high degree of integrity, high calibre. But I think under the national security law and also recent political developments, it is inevitable that some people in the community may start to question whether Hong Kong's judicial system has changed and to what extent the national security law has affected the verdicts given by the courts. I believe that Hong Kong judges are still devoted in their job. Right? They have integrity and they're very professional. Yeah. I do not doubt their professionalism in that sense. But I guess because of the political and constitutional environment that they now operate, they are under certain limits right, to what they can do, for example, in granting bail. Right? It's not for them to decide because they got to operate according to the prevailing regulations. And so I guess that's one difficulty for the judges. And how would that affect public perception? I believe that some people, especially those who are more democratically mined, they may question about how long Hong Kong judges can hang on to it. Right, if there are more new regulations that may come up uh, later to further restrict what they can do or to observe the procedures. And according to my previous research, based on public surveys, there is indeed a trend that certain people in Hong Kong have kind of lost their trust in the legal system or have trust the court less. And these people tend to be younger, more educated, and also identify themselves as being pro-democracy or localist, those mm. who concerned local interests. But of course, the research was based on one or two surveys. It may not be conclusive, but I guess they speak 
to a trend that has been around for past six, seven years, and the trend keep changing because of the prevailing development in Hong Kong. But I guess it is inevitable that looking at what has been happening in Hong Kong over the past two, three years, that more people may really consider or reconsider their position in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. And how is it changing then how people are conducting themselves in Hong Kong? Because I I imagine the introduction of the national security law has very much lessened the protest atmosphere that Hong Kong had generated in the past decade, especially if you just look at the way the press has been reporting how life is like in Hong Kong now. There seems to be very much a a pro-democracy protest movement that was building up there. Then there was the introduction of this law at about the same time a pandemic hit. So now that we're on the other side of all of that, do you see life changing in Hong Kong, at least in those kind of areas? Yeah, because there's no more public protests. Like, if you remember, Hong Kong was famous for the candlelight vigil on June 4th every year in Victoria Park. But that has stopped under the national security law and actually under the earlier COVID-19 social restrictive measures. Right. Um, So there's one big change. And basically, even though I guess people still go about their life as usual in many ways, some fundamental changes have taken place, like the public display of activism. People may try to shy away from any public display of political messages because you don't know whether you would be charged uh, with any charges under the national security law. So I guess for those who are more politically minded or they are indeed activists, they may either leave Hong Kong or they would just totally change the way they behave. Okay, okay. But leaving Hong Kong, these laws apply overseas though as well, don't they? The reach can be quite far if desired. Of course, the law in theory catches everyone, Yeah. everyone, whether you are a Hong Kong citizen or not. What do you think that that's going to do in the future to Hong Kong? Do you think the judicial system will change further or do you think that this is the way that it's going to be now? It's hard to say, but at least under the basic law and under the 50-year unchanged promise, Hong Kong's legal system or other social systems would remain unchanged until 2047. Yeah. That's the um, year when the 50-year promise ends. No one knows what would happen, whether the guarantee would automatically renew itself. We don't know. But I guess for the legal system, I do not see why it would change. I mean, in the near future, at least before 2047, because Hong Kong's legal system remains a quintessentially British common law system. Even though the British elements have largely been dispensed of, but all the hard wires are there, right? The judges, the wicks and gangs, the ceremonial parts of the judicial system, and also all the Hong Kong judges and lawyers were trained in either Hong Kong or other common law jurisdictions. So the system remains pretty common law, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah, it'd be quite monumental if that changed very quickly all of a sudden. I would say so. Yeah, but having said that, uh, we should get you on the podcast again in about 25 years' time to, to <laughs> evaluate what's been going on. Hopefully, I'll, I'll still be around. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Karen Lee, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any readily available podcatching platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can find out more at the La Trobe Asia website, latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia, and you can find us on social media. La Trobe Asia is on LinkedIn, and we are also on Twitter, at La Trobe Asia. This podcast was recorded and produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on unceded Wurundjeri land, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island elders, both past and present. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>